welcome everyone to episode 30 of Curseland, an anthology show about strange happenings, curious folk, and small towns. I am your host and sole proprietor of Curseland, which can be found at www.curse.land. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Let's get started. Let's start this week with a story from NorthCarolinaGhosts.com. This is entitled, The Brown Mountain Lights. Brown Mountain is a low ridge in Burke County that, during dry, crisp evenings in the autumn, is host to a genuine and baffling mystery. When conditions are right, mysterious glowing orbs can be seen to rise up off the mountain, hover and wobble about 15 feet up in the air, and then disappear. There's no denying that the lights are real. They've been observed by countless witnesses and photographed on many occasions. But what they are is still unknown. The Brown Mountain Lights have been observed for centuries, and multiple legends have arisen around the phenomenon. The Cherokee were aware of the lights, and according to some accounts, claimed that the lights were the souls of Cherokee women searching for their men who had died in a great battle between the Cherokee and Catawba that took place on Brown Mountain. Another legend says that the lights are the ghostly echoes of lights that appeared during a search for a murdered woman in the 19th century. But what was once the most widely known legend was recorded in a song in the 1950s by a duo known as the Sweethearts of Country Music. Scott Wiseman and Myrtle Eleanor Cooper were both North Carolina natives who recorded as Lulu Bell and Scotty from the 1920s until the 1950s. A married couple, the two performed together from 1935 until 1958 as regulars on the Chicago radio station's WLSAM's National Barn Dance program. At the time, they were one of the biggest acts in country music. The song, Brown Mountain Light, penned by Wiseman, tells a version of the story where a man, accompanied by a slave, becomes lost while hunting on the mountain. The man is never found. The slave returns to the mountain every night with a lantern to hunt for him, carrying on his search even from beyond the grave. Wiseman, who was from nearby Boone, said this version of the story is the one he heard from his uncle, who took him hunting and camping near Brown Mountain. The song rose to the top of the country charts and subsequently became the best-known version of the legend for a generation. The legend of Brown Mountain, recorded in the Lulu Bell and Scotty song, is somewhat dated, particularly in regard to its unforgivable romanticizing of slavery. Indeed, it's easy to imagine a retelling of this story where the lights are from people looking for the slave who, when realizing he was alone on the mountain, seized his chance and hightailed it for Ohio and freedom. As for the lights themselves, many different possible scientific explanations have been offered, from swamp gas to the reflections of automobile headlights from the valley below, but every explanation offered up so far seems to be too easily disproved. The lights have been observed since before automobiles existed, so headlights are an unsatisfactory explanation, and the lights were even observed during the 1916 flood that shut down all automobile and railway traffic in the valley below. The swamp gas theory seems to be slightly hobbled by the complete absence of a swamp on Brown Mountain. Some have theorized that the lights may be a naturally occurring electrical discharge caused by the slow movement of the geological fault line below the mountain. 
whatever their cause, people still flock to see the brown mountain lights, but spotting them is never guaranteed. Reportedly, your best chance to see the lights comes on a dry, clear night in October or November, after all the leaves are off the trees. And if you go over to the show notes and click on the link to this article, they actually have a list of all the best places to see these lights. Sounds pretty cool. I wouldn't mind seeing some photographs if anybody knows where to find some. Anyway, here's that song they referenced in the story. from psychiatrictimes.com Dungeons and Back Alleys The Fate of the Mentally Ill in America and this is written by Dr. Alan Francis My career is ending on a sour note It is hard to be complacent when 600,000 people who should be our patients are instead languishing as prisoners or sleeping on the streets County jails are now the biggest providers of psychiatric care for people suffering from severe mental illness. 
and our patients do particularly poorly in jail, enduring long stays, frequently in crazy-making solitary confinement and often targeted for physical and sexual abuse. I've seen long rows of cells, in each of which is a desperate, mentally ill occupant who has smeared excrement all over the walls and windows. We have no excuse for collectively failing the patients who need us most. It's easy enough for each of us to blame the system, the government neglect, professional association passivity, and advocacy groups loss of mission. But I also blame myself for having done far too little, far too late. We are all part of the system and must take personal responsibility for its miserable performance. We won't be able to correct this horrible mess without understanding its history. The mental hospitals established by the states in the 19th century had the best of intentions and the worst of consequences. Their goal was the humane treatment of the mentally ill following the principles promulgated by the father of modern psychiatry, Philippe Pinel. These asylums were meant to be places of peaceful rural retreat, providing safety and a meaningful life for psychiatric patients who had no place in the rapidly growing cities. The hospitals were self-contained communities, much more civilized and welcoming than the chaotic urban environments. There were workshops and surrounding farms that allowed patients to learn skills and feel productive. Hospital directors, staff, and families lived on the grounds and broke bread with the patients. The architecture of the buildings was usually strikingly beautiful, and they were surrounded by lovely bucolic settings. The 20th century witnessed a rapid and thorough degradation of the system, with cattle car overcrowding and system-wide patient neglect. Professionalizing the staff depersonalized the care. Growing cities surrounded and swallowed up hospital grounds, restricting patients to endless days in ugly, packed, stench-filled wards. Unions resented job competition from unpaid or low-paid patients and pressured to have workshops closed. The well-meaning asylums had degenerated into dreadful snake pits. My first experience in psychiatry occurred 55 years ago as a medical student in one of these state hospitals. It was degrading and disgusting, an overwhelming smell of urine, neglected patients screaming and posturing, a demoralized and disengaged staff, disappearing doctors. The deinstitutionalization movement meant to correct this chaos arose from a strange combination. Public outrage, a new model of community psychiatry, the discovery of powerful new drugs, Kennedy family guilt, and state government greed. Three books were especially influential. The Snake Pit, the semi-autobiographical 1946 novel by Mary Jane Ward, made into an acclaimed 1948 movie vividly presented a first-hand account of the sufferings of terrorized patients. The Myth of Mental Illness, written in 1961 by libertarian psychiatrist Tom Zaz, made the moral and legal argument that patients are citizens with civil rights that must be respected. Published in the same year, sociologist Irving Goffman's Asylums revealed that total institutionalization made patients much sicker and more dependent than they would be in any less crazy-making environment. Community psychiatry envisioned an attractive alternative life for the mentally ill. Symptoms stabilized by the new antipsychotic meds, living independently in the community, re-socialized and working productively. 
John Kennedy's exposure to his sister's mental illness motivated him to support a comprehensive mental health bill that provided funding for community health centers throughout the United States. State governments were all too eager to close the enormous mental hospitals that were usually their biggest budget line item. Deinstitutionalization was an ugly business. Patients who had been in hospital for decades were often dumped on the street with just one week's warning. A man was admitted to my acute inpatient unit the day after he'd been discharged from the state hospital that had been his home and business for 22 years. He had achieved great status and relative affluence washing staff members' cars. Now, without any transition or support, he was disconsolate and could not picture making a new life for himself. A few days later, I had to cut him down after he had hung himself in the bathroom. CMHCs eventually did live up to expectations and were a thrilling place to work. We saw many of our patients flourish away from the toxic state hospital environment. Seemingly chronic symptoms were reduced by a happy combination of the new meds, rehab, and socialization. By the 1970s, the United States was the pioneer and world leader in deinstitutionalization and community psychiatry. Then, in the 1980s, the Reagan administration killed the system, ending direct federal funding for CMHCs and replacing it with block grants to the states that were rarely spent on mental health and eventually were ended altogether. This was clothed as an ideological effort to cut federal spending and give more power to the states, but it was mostly a means to cut taxes for the wealthy. Disaster followed upon the double blows of deinstitutionalization and the closure or privatization of most CMHCs. Before deinstitutionalization, there had been about 650,000 state hospital beds in the United States. Now, with more than twice the population, we have only about 35,000. Whereas before, we had far too many patients staying far too long in snake pit warehouses, now it is usually impossible to find a bed even for people in desperate need, and stays are far too short. Outpatient treatment for the severely ill is either completely unavailable or a month or more away. Emergency rooms are jammed with acutely ill patients, but have nothing to offer them. Cops, who are the routine first responders, having learned it is a waste of time taking mentally ill patients to an emergency room, now instead are forced to take them to jail, and having to deal on a regular basis with the untreated and unpredictable mentally ill has probably made some cops trigger happy. With its imprisoned and homeless army of patients, the United States has become the worst place in the world to have a severe mental illness. The best places are those that have most fully embraced a community psychiatry model, particularly the city of Trieste and the Nordic countries. Advocacy for the mentally ill has been muted and impotent. It is sad testimony that the strongest pressure for better care comes from the police and sheriff associations that have been made responsible for people who should be within the mental health system. The psychiatric and psychological associations have been extremely passive, never making the shameful neglect of the severely ill their number one priority. NAMI started as an advocacy group to fight for better treatment of the severely ill, but has lost its way and diluted its mission, often distracted by unrealistic faith in scientific research and the development of new drugs. The reliance on future research is a case of blind hope victorious over bitter experience. 
NIMH has spent tens of billions of dollars doing fascinating science that has not yet helped a single patient. The human brain is the most complicated thing in the known universe and keeps its secrets well hidden. Genetics and neuroimaging have shown how remarkably complex and interacting are the biopsychosocial causes of mental illness and that there will likely never be magic bullets. Drug companies have stopped looking for them. NIDA has similarly focused almost exclusively on brain mechanisms and has largely ignored practical questions that would improve the lives of people suffering from addictions. Until recently, SAMHSA was funding mostly frilly projects completely divorced from the needs and sufferings of the severely ill. The Treatment Advocacy Center is the only group fully committed to research the needs of the severely ill, speak truth to power, and to give voice to the voiceless. We need a moonshot mentality, and it doesn't require rocket science or new research. We have known for 50 years how to provide good care for severe mental illness. There is nothing mysterious or complicated about it. Decent housing, easily accessible treatment, social clubs, vocational rehab, positive regard, respect, and empathy, family support. The only thing new is applying the internet as a powerful tool for education, for social networking, and monitoring symptoms. Priority number one is to get patients out of prison and off the streets. Court diversion programs have proven their worth in preventing imprisonment and deserve universal adoption. Prison diversion programs must now be developed to deinstitutionalize the mentally ill who have been inappropriately imprisoned and provide them with proper community housing and care. Neglect of the severely ill is not only barbarically inhumane, it is also economically stupid. And the prison, police, emergency room solutions to mental illness are not only ridiculously inappropriate, they are also ridiculously expensive. Decent care for the severely ill is not only a moral imperative, it is the only rational public policy. Why is it that the rest of the developed world gets this, and what makes us the laggard outlier? How can it be that the richest country in the world is most neglectful of its most vulnerable citizens? The simplest answer to this complicated question is the misplaced U.S. faith that market forces are always the most efficient vehicle for solving problems. Adam Smith, the father of modern economics, knew better and strongly supported the role of government in providing vital public services undervalued by the market. Privatization of mental health has resulted in too much treatment for the well, cruel neglect for severely sick. My desperate and so far unheeded plea is that we radically switch priorities. The two APAs and NAMI should devote their lobbying and public relations muscle exclusively to freeing the imprisoned patients and providing decent housing. NIMH and NIDA should stop seeing themselves as narrowly focused brain institutes and widen their research agendas to projects that might actually help people, not just advance scientific knowledge. SAMHSA should become a prison release and ending homelessness agency, and none of us should go to sleep without contemplating the fate of the patient in a prison bed or sleeping outside in the cold. At a promotion and award ceremony for senior officers on Thursday, Russian President Vladimir Putin hailed recent achievements of his military, 
especially in forwarding ambitious plans to develop weapons said to be capable of overcoming existing and even prospective defense systems. He then revealed some of the latest progress for these modern, powerful, precision weapons that are determining and will determine in the future the image of Russia's armed forces. From Newsweek.com, a story by Tom O'Connor. Russia's most powerful nuclear missile is in its final testing stage, and these other weapons are also on their way. The Avangard missile system with a boost glide vehicle, our hypersonic intercontinental system, will considerably enhance the power of the strategic missile forces. The final tests involving the Sarmat intercontinental ballistic missile have been a success, Putin told those in attendance. As you may know, the Kinzhal hypersonic system and the Perisbet laser system have been put on alert duty. The Navy's new surface ships and nuclear submarines will be armed with advanced types of weapons, including the Sircon hypersonic missile, which has no parallels in the world in terms of range and speed, he added. Putin unveiled a number of these weapons along with other state-of-the-art projects like the underwater Poseidon drone and the 9M730 Berevsnik nuclear-powered cruise missile during his March 2018 State of the Nation address. In the years since, the Russian military has conducted testing on all of these weapons, with varying degrees of progress. Among the most highly speculated was the RS-28 Sarmat, previously nicknamed Satan II by the U.S.-led NATO Western Military Alliance. Putin claimed the weapon has practically no range restrictions and is untroubled by even the most advanced missile defense systems, during his 2018 speech and stated in his February 2019 State of the Nation remarks that it was undergoing a series of tests. Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu later told reporters that the Sarmat had reached the next stage of testing. Shortly after Putin described the Avangard, a weapon that Moscow has claimed could travel up to 20 times the speed of sound as an answer to U.S. aspirations for a global missile shield, Shoigu announced that the weapons system capable of being fitted to the Sarmat would be combat alert by December. Just one month earlier, President Donald Trump had unveiled his 2019 Missile Defense Review, vowing to detect and destroy any missile launched against the United States anywhere, anytime. The Republican leader's report specifically cited the threat of Russia and China's development of hypersonic and cruise missile technology in his case for establishing ambitious new measures, such as space-based interceptors, that Moscow and Beijing have warned may spark an arms race. Also raising concerns was the collapse of the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces, or INF, treaty in February. The U.S. accused Russia of violating the 1987 agreement banning land-based missiles ranging from 310 to 3,420 miles with the deployment of the Novator 9M729 missile. Moscow has denied the weapon goes against the pact and has charged Washington with breaking the INF terms through its installment in Eastern Europe of missile defenses that Russian officials have argued could be used to attack as well. The debate has overshadowed attempts to launch negotiations toward extending another new strategic arms reduction treaty, or START. Russia has argued that the U.S. showed little interest in discussing the agreement, which limits the amount of deployed and non-deployed nuclear warheads as well as carriers, 
and has accused its counterparts in Washington of potentially manipulating their nuclear reporting figures. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo told the Senate Foreign Relations Committee on Wednesday that, though there are some arguments on the edges each, but largely the Russians have been compliant with the treaty due to expire in 2021. Both the Russians and the United States have been compliant, he added. We're at the very beginning of conversations about renewing that. If we can get the deal right, if we can make sure that it fits 2020 and beyond, President Trump has made very clear that if we can get a good, solid arms control agreement, we ought to get one. I've got some updates on the show for us before we get to the next story. As I'm sure some of you have noticed, my once-a-week posting schedule has been slipping quite a bit lately. Um, When I started this show, that was back last October, so this now is the first time I've ever been through a summer with it. Well, it turns out the summer is such a busy season for travel and work and stuff, you know, for me, just like it is for everyone else. So what we've got to do here is move to an every other week schedule, which I hope is just through the summer and we can go back to doing weekly shows sort of when work and stuff calms down and the fall hits again. To do that, I'm going to release episodes on Wednesdays, just like I've done with this one that you're hearing right now. I hope you're enjoying it. And the next one will come in two weeks on June 19th. And also... One more time, because I really feel like I can't say it enough. Thank you again to everybody who sent in donations to the show. I really do appreciate it, and it really does help fund and bandwidth costs directly. I'd like to say that sometimes I get to peel off some beer money occasionally and go down to the bar, but really there's just too many downloads for that, which that's probably more rewarding overall. So thank you all a lot. And if you haven't donated yet and you feel so inclined, go on over to www.curse.land slash donate to see how to do it on there. Thanks again, everybody. Now I'm going to get on with it. Here's a story entitled, The Bizarre Disappearance of Keith Reinhard in Silver Plume, Colorado. This is from HistoricMysteries.com, and it was written by Les Hewitt. Two men, Tom Young and Keith Reinhard, were both going through midlife crises. Both of them rented the same retail space in Silver Plume, and both disappeared in the Colorado Rocky Mountains only one year apart. Oddly, Keith had delved deeply into Tom's life and was writing a novel about him. The main character, Guy Gypsum, took on qualities of both men. Although hunters located Tom in 1988, Keith never turned up, and his bizarre case remains open to this day. Silver Plume is a quaint, historic town in Clear Creek County, Colorado. Early settlers had hoped to strike gold, but only ever found clumps of grayish ores that they deemed worthless. What the miners actually found was silver ore. In 1987, this tiny town only had around 200 residents when a local man, Tom Young, took his dog for a walk one day. Neither he nor his pet ever returned. Nine months later, in June 1988, 
a local sports writer in Illinois, Keith Reinhard, was having something of a midlife crisis. He was about to turn 50 and wanted to accomplish certain things while he was still young enough. On top of that, living in Chicago was starting to take its toll on him. Stress was taking its toll on him and he started gaining weight. He also lost focus and wondered what the future might hold for him. Even though he held a decent job and was a married man of three years with two children, there was a void that needed filling. Reinhard had an old friend called Ted Parker who owned the KP Cafe in Silver Plume. Ted often mentioned a slower pace and quieter life. This appealed to Reinhard, so he informed Carolyn, his wife, that he wanted to spend some time in Silver Plume alone and work on a novel. Plus, by doing some hiking in the mountains, he hoped to get into shape and overcome his fear of heights. Even though she was initially wary of this idea, his wife relented and agreed that he should fulfill his dream. Reinhard took a three-month sabbatical from work and departed for Silver Plume. He settled in and found a vacant shop right next to the cafe on Main Street that he leased in order to sell antiques and matted photographs. Not long after his arrival in the sleepy town, someone mentioned that the previous tenant of the space had disappeared without a trace just a year before. Reinhard considered this to be an ideal story to tell and began to research Tom Young. Curiosity quickly turned into an obsession. Unfortunately, Reinhard was beset with problems. The shop wasn't doing much business, understandably, in a small town like Silverplume. On top of that, he began to get writer's block, and his inspiration started to wane. Reinhard may have become a little disillusioned with how things were going, but he did love walking in the nearby Rocky Mountains. On the 31st of July, 1988, local hunters were patrolling the mountain wilderness approximately an hour's walk from Silverplume when they found a skeleton propped up against a tree. Not far away was a backpack, a pistol, and the skeletal remains of a dog. It was Tom Young and his dog Gus. Both had a gunshot wound to the head. This discovery helped bring additional details to light. Several days before he disappeared, Young had bought a pistol. Police treated this as a simple suicide, but others were not so easily convinced. Young was extremely fond of Gus, and locals couldn't see any reason for Young to shoot Gus at all. According to Unsolved Mysteries, ballistic tests were unable to match the bullets to the gun. The mystery of what happened to Tom Young may or may not have been solved, but there was more to follow. A week after Young and Gus were found, Reinhard closed up his shop for the day. The evening was drawing on and Reinhard walked all around town and to the cafe, and he told everyone he encountered that he was heading out to hike up Pendleton Mountain. Those that he told assumed that he was kidding them, a round trip on the mountain would take about six hours. Sunset in Silver Plume in August occurs around 8 p.m., and very few people are skilled enough to hike the Rockies at night. Also, the elevation at the top of Pendleton Mountain is more than 12,000 feet, and the risk of exposure to the elements is very high, even in July. Wild animals such as mountain lions and bears can also pose a threat. Reinhard had no preparation at all, and no suitable mountain gear or supplies when he was seen heading toward the base of the mountain. This was not his first attempt, though. Friends recalled that his previous attempt had ended when he showed signs of vertigo. Reinhardt set a deadline of 10 p.m. for his return and departed at 4.30 p.m. 
This was the last time he was ever seen in the plume. When the following morning arrived, there was still no sign of Keith Reinhardt. The Colorado Alpine Rescue Team launched a huge rescue operation involving helicopters, search dogs, and many townsfolk. After one week, authorities found nothing. Everyone knew that the rescue effort was not going to be an easy one, and at least one person commented that this was the classic needle-in-a-haystack endeavor. They finally called off the search on the 12th of August, 1989, when, sadly, a Cessna carrying two of the searchers crashed. Only one of the pair survived the impact. Two men that vanished under strikingly similar circumstances in a town as small as Silver Plume a year apart appeared to be more than just a coincidence. Friends of both men were at a loss to explain any of it. A strange discovery was found in Keith's home. Next to his computer, a newspaper article about Tom Young laid open. On his computer, the manuscript for his novel was not finished, but there was a passage about a man called Guy Gypsum. It read, Guy Gypsum changed into some hiking boots and donned a heavy flannel shirt. He understood it all now, and his motivations. Guy closed the door and then walked off towards the lush, shadowless Colorado forests above. From what friends can tell, these were the final words that Reinhardt had written. Was he setting the stage for his own disappearance? Reinhardt did something else that may point to a setup. One week before he walked off into the mountains, he wrote a letter to the editors of Herald Newspaper where he worked in Illinois to tell them that when he returned, he wanted to cover the Chicago Bulls. This would certainly make a disappearance appear accidental. Almost as soon as he vanished, everyone began to speculate about the possible reasons as to why he vanished. Among these is the idea that Reinhard had no intention of returning, that the whole thing was certainly engineered on his part. The night before he disappeared, Reinhard was at a party and was seen talking extensively with a woman named Greta or Gretchen, who was presumed to be from Denver. Could she have had something to do with him deciding to escape his life? The last passage he wrote can be taken into a different context if that was the case. He had uprooted himself and left behind everything that he'd known already. Could he have done it again? Extending that idea a little further, in the run-up to his own disappearance, Reinhardt had shown more than a healthy interest in Tom Young. Might have Keith Reinhardt wanted to be the new Tom Young? Reinhardt might have had issues with life in general, but nobody has admitted that he had some sort of death wish. There's also no record of him ever owning a firearm. Authors do tend to try and live the characters that they create, and perhaps this was what Reinhard was doing. Perhaps his lack of preparation ultimately cost him dearly. An unforeseen injury might have had a more detrimental effect than it otherwise could have done. The terrain on and around the mountain is treacherous at best, deadly at worst. The problem with that idea is that there was not a long time between the disappearance and the search efforts. Perhaps this was some kind of publicity stunt that ended up going wrong. The fatal crash of the Cessna might have convinced him not to re-emerge and chose to remain in hiding, perhaps even in places like Mexico. There have been numerous sightings attributed to Reinhard since his disappearance. There is another possibility. As well as their disappearances, both men had another thing in common, the shop itself. Some people put a lot of importance on this fact. Had they learned something about the store that put them at risk? If so, was foul play involved? 
For either supposition to be true, then surely someone must have had access to the store. That would suggest a local was responsible for both deaths if Reinhard indeed died on that mountain. Did the same thing happen to Tom Young and then Keith Reinhard? Could the same culprit have struck twice? Although there's been much debate and conjecture about this case over the last three decades, nobody is any closer to an answer. An 1863 text called Resources of the Southern Fields and Forests by Francis Porcher, a botanist and surgeon from South Carolina, was a compendium of plants known to have medicinal properties and a guide to how they should be applied. Much of Porcher's research was culled from long-standing healing traditions used by Native American and enslaved African communities, so it is perhaps ironic that this book was commissioned by the Confederacy and used to treat wounds during the Civil War. Recently, scientists at Emory University have studied three of the species, widely found across the South, described in the book to assess whether they would have been successful in the treatment of wounded soldiers and how they might be incorporated in modern medicine. From AtlasObscura.com A story by Evan Nicole Brown how Civil War plant remedies could improve modern medicine. During the Civil War, soldiers suffered from fever, blood poisoning, and mortification of the flesh, a poetic way of describing infected necrotic wounds. At the time, amputation was the obvious and most advanced solution to prevent death from a battle wound. Samuel Moore, the Confederate Surgeon General, created a document called Standard Supply Table of the Indigenous Remedies for Field Service and the Sick in General Hospitals to cut down on the rate of amputations and draw upon the natural healing properties of plants. Moore's 10-page document drew heavily upon Porcher's more exhaustive work. They would use these plants to create tinctures and syrups that would be taken orally or used as topical therapies, says Cassandra Quave, senior author of the paper from Emory's Center for the Study of Human Health. The most compelling part of Porcher's compendium, she says, is that it provided a great case study for what people do when they're cut off from other sources of medicine. How do we move forward when we don't have access to medicine or it no longer functions? Quave is an ethnobotanist who studies the ways people use plants, particularly historical use as remedies. We rely on historical texts, and we also look at traditions of people practicing herbal medicine, she says. For this study, Quave's lab focused on three plants, white oak, the tulip poplar, and the devil's walking stick, all found growing in Lowell Water Preserve on the Emory campus in Atlanta. Turns out there was something to the traditional wisdom after all. The first thing we did after creating these extracts and turning them into tonics was we tested them to see if they inhibited the growth of these wound-associated bacteria, Quave explains. And in particular, multidrug-resistant strains of the bacteria Acinobacter baumani, Staphylococcus aureus, and Klebsiella pneumoniae. Researchers discovered that these three plant varieties prevented the process that allows the bacteria to stick to wound tissue and disrupted the chemical signaling that results in the release of toxins. 
though the three species have different chemical makeups and are not botanically related, they all had the same effect on wound-hungry bacteria. Though white oak, tulip poplar, and the devil's walking stick are all found in abundance in southern forests, they can be found up and down the east coast, from Florida to Maine and even into Canada. This idea that plants can serve as a resource for the discovery of drugs really isn't a new concept, Quave says. It's something that's led to the development of many of our modern medicines. The team is now thinking about how these natural remedies might become part of a modern medical arsenal. Hydrogels, ointments, rinses, or medicated bandages, maybe. Says Quave, We're taking another look at nature and at human traditions of using plants as medicine in our search for novel compounds. They were there ever since I could remember. As a child, I would awaken to the soft chirping of birds filling my room. I would rustle in my blanket until I was following the two that sang to me, perched on the windowsill. I'd lay in bed until their song was over and I was able to start my day, but their song carried more than just a pretty tune. They brought me predictions. One of the birds was a dove. Its beautiful snow-white feathers caught the light of the sun so gracefully. Its bright blue eyes, deeper than any ocean, would observe me as I listened to its song. The dove always sang first, and within its song would be the prediction of something good that would happen in my life. The birds didn't actually say anything, but when their song reached my eardrums, the predictions acted like memories. I could recall things that happened that day, even though they hadn't happened yet. The other bird was a raven. Its ruffled feathers were darker than the spaces between the stars and seemed to soak up the sun. It has beady red eyes that reminded me of the blood moon. After the dove was done, the raven would sing. When its song reached me, I would have a memory of something bad that was going to happen that day. No one ever believed me about the birds. I would try to call my parents into the room as they were singing, but my parents never saw them. Even if they were in the room at the same time, so my parents started referring to them as imaginary friends. Since no one else ever saw these birds, I started to believe them. It didn't matter what I believed, though. The birds would continue to visit me like clockwork and tell their tales. Their predictions always came to pass. When I was younger, the predictions were simple and generally innocent, like when the doves sang that the school would be serving pizza for lunch, and the raven retorted that I would get a paper cut in math class. Sure enough, I'd walk to school and at lunch I'd be given two slices of pizza. I'd be so content from lunch that I would carelessly pull my textbook from my backpack and a loose page would slice my finger open. It just goes to show you how simple middle school really was. Even back then, bad news wasn't typically that bad. The cut hurt, but it healed in no time. The dove even told me the next morning that I'd get ice cream for being such a brave little girl. The raven said I'd forget my pencils at home. Even if the predictions were things I could easily alter, I never seemed to be able to. Like the day I just mentioned, I made a note to grab my favorite pencil before I left. I was so focused on remembering to do it that eventually I sort of just thought I did until I got to school and discovered no pencils in my backpack. 
As I grew older, I came to understand that what the birds considered to be good or bad news was relative to my outlook. For example, when I moved with my family and was forced to attend a new high school two years into my high school education, I was a bit of an outcast. You know the story. New kid in school becomes the target of ridicule from the Queen Bee. This queen was named Casey Matthews, and I grew to hate Casey. One morning, I sat up in bed and listened to the day's news. When I heard that Casey Matthews was going to fall in gym, I was a bit surprised. I thought it was weird that the raven went first as the dove always took the lead. When I turned to the birds, however, the raven had just started its song and told me that I got a failing grade on the science test. I didn't want to think I was the type of person who would relish in another's pain, so I dismissed it as a fluke. I had done worse than just getting a failing grade on my test. I had gotten the lowest score in the class and was called out by the teacher for it. I could hear Casey snickering to her friends at the other end of the room. It put me in such a foul mood as we shuffled off to gym class, we had to play basketball, something I was no good at. Everyone was running back and forth as I slowly paced from one end of the court to the other. I was watching Casey like a hawk. I wasn't even thinking of the prediction. I was just so fed up with her attitude. Even as everyone was trying to play the game, she mocked some of the heavier students, all while barely participating. She caught me looking at her, and I shot her a fake smile. She rolled her eyes and turned away. As she turned, the basketball whipped by her head, and while it didn't hit her, it did throw her off balance. I watched as Casey Matthews frantically attempted to keep herself upright, but only managing to make the fall even worse. Her legs flew out from under her, and even though she was able to put her hands in front of her face, the meeting between her face and the ground was audible throughout the large room. I couldn't help but genuinely beam at the event, biting my lip to stifle the laughter that was trying to crawl out. A few of the students ran over to help her up, and when they pulled her face from the floor, thin trails of blood trickled from her nose. Even from where I was standing, I could tell it was broken and would create a nasty yellow bruise all over her face. That made me happy. The dove knew it was something worth singing about. Casey Matthews was a bitch. Up until now, I've kept the appearances of my birds to myself, ever since my parents labeled them as imaginary. Lately, however, I'm becoming increasingly uncomfortable with the songs they've been singing to me. Just about a month ago, I lost my mother to an extensive battle with cancer. I knew before I even left the bedroom that she'd died. The raven made sure of that. What did the dove sing for the day? That my mother was no longer going to suffer. Guess one event can carry multiple weights. After she passed, I and my dad tried to carry on. It was hard to live life without her, but we decided she wouldn't want us to dwell. The birds were kind to me. The dove would sing of something grand that would take place, like my uncle taking me on a short road trip. The raven's song would carry only small irritations, like getting something stuck in my teeth. I needed time to heal, and the birds knew that. Until my father got sick, too. Only two weeks after my mom had passed, he started going in and out of consciousness and had to be hospitalized. I was so angry. I'm still so angry. I couldn't understand why I would have to lose one parent only to watch the other start to fade. I became bitter from all of this and would lay in bed, clutching the fabric of my sheets, and when I woke in the morning, I would hear the birds singing. The dove would sing to me that 
4,307 people were going to die in a car accident that day. I was shocked that this was something the dove would tell me until the raven informed me that my dad had to spend another week in the hospital. I'd have to suffer another week without my dad at home, but he wouldn't be driving home that day like he was supposed to. The news boiled down to, a lot of people are going to die today, but your dad won't. The way it was delivered is what worried me, and it only got worse. The next morning, the dove told me that I would get a present in the mail, and I was pleased that the dove's song was actually pleasant. The raven, however, informed me that I wasn't the only thing that could hear the songs. I was perplexed, but I couldn't do anything about it. I can't converse with the birds. I can only listen. I wondered why that would be bad news. When I went to leave the house, I saw the present the dove mentioned sitting right outside the front door. A small package poorly wrapped in hideous green and blue paper that was dotted with various snowflakes. I brought the gift inside and pulled the paper away from the box, sliding a knife through the tape that held it shut. I revealed the contents. I stood for a while, looking at the snow-white feather that laid on the brown cardboard, a feather that held the light of the sun with familiar grace. The day flew by. I could only think about the songs I heard in the morning, about what else was listening to the songs. I became so concerned that something was invading this moment that I thought made me special. These birds were mine, and no one else was supposed to listen to them. I wanted to get home. I wanted to sleep, and so I could try to get more information from their songs. With the help of a few sleeping pills, I was able to get to bed earlier than usual. My dreams were vivid. They were of the dark, but the dark was made from feathers of the raven. They danced by me and tickled my face until I sprang up in my bed. Immediately, I turned to the birds sitting on the window as the dove began to sing. It told me that I was going to live to see another morning, and the raven informed me that it was getting closer. I got up from my bed and started walking towards the window, but as I approached, the birds took off and vanished from my view. I stood and watched out of my window. The world was unmoving like nothing wanted to earn my ire. Looking down at the windowsill, I observed something I'd never noticed before. The tips of my finger ran over the small grooves that had been etched into the wood by the birds taking off and landing every day. I knew then that they weren't just something from my head. The birds are tangible, but other people just don't see them. Foolishly, I had forgotten that the news the birds delivered to me is based on my state of mind and what's relevant to me. So, as I continued to stress over what the raven was referring to, they continued to sing about it. The dove was right. I'd lived to see another morning. Several, in fact. Another few days went by, and now here I am. In the past few days, the songs went something like this. The dove sang that I wouldn't have to water the garden, which was true. The rain that day did it for me. The raven told me that it was going to find me that day. I don't know if that played out, but the raven was no liar. The next day, the dove told me that my dad was going to call. He did. He told me how proud of me he was and that he hopes he gets well enough to come home soon. The raven sang to me, while I was fidgeting with the feather that had been delivered to me, that I was going to forget to lock the back door, which I regrettably did. 
When I left the room after those songs, I walked downstairs to find tracks of mud all through the house leading to my door. I couldn't decide on what the tracks were. They didn't look like anything a human could leave behind, but the path it took didn't seem like an animal. It ignored the garbage, dirty dishes in the sink, and the fridge, all things I assume a scavenger would be interested in. I couldn't figure out why it had stopped at my door. I still don't know. Yesterday, the dove sang to me that it, the dove told me that it would always watch over me. The raven said that they couldn't protect me. The birds didn't leave the window for a while after their songs. They just kept chirping away, like they wanted me to remember what they sounded like. All of yesterday, I did my best to be productive. I went to see my dad, and we talked for a long time, and he asked about the birds. He asked me what they said would happen. I told him they didn't really say anything too special. He laughed, and then he asked me about the dog. For a minute, I was confused. I thought possibly his mind was wondering, so I pressed about it. He told me that before I told them about the birds at my window, I would wake them up crying every night about the dog in my room. He couldn't remember how I described it with my limited vocabulary, only that it was as horrific as a child could make it. He told me he and mom would console me every night. I started to remember as he went over the details, the memory playing in my head as if sung by the birds, the black pajamas my dad would wear, the white flowing gown mom wore to bed, how I would run to their room every night, how they both held me and told me that they would always watch over me. My parents always tried their best to keep me safe. My mom taught me to see the brighter side of things, and my dad, always stern, taught me the negatives were important too. After my mother passed away, the birds started to get weaker, and with my dad's fading health, I just don't think their songs are loud enough anymore. I left the hospital and returned home to finish cleaning the house, every inch of it spotless. As I sat down in my room last night and watched out the window, I could see it in the yard looking back at me. I understand why, as a child, I called it a dog. That was probably all I could come up with, and even now, I don't know what else to call it. I couldn't see it too well in the dark, but whatever it was was hunched over on all fours, but its body was large and looked to have scraps of skin peeling off of it. The thing's eyes were yellow and glowing like spotlights. I'm glad I didn't have to see it in great detail. I wanted to write all this down before it gets too dark. This morning I woke up and listened to the songs my birds sang to me. I tried not to spend all day in bed. I tried to think of some way to go against the predictions, but it's never worked before. So I did my best to make peace and try to get down what I could, put it out there. I called my dad and told him I loved him and now here I am. The songs playing in my head over and over. The raven sang to me that the creature would be in my room tonight like it had been when I was a child. The dove told me that I would be with my mother once more. That concludes episode 30 of Curseland. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you all enjoyed. As always, if you've got a story you'd like to hear on the show or any other feedback, you can email feedback at curse.land. The show's also on Twitter at curseland, so you can message me on there if you prefer. Till next time, I'll talk to y'all later. <laughs>